So it, it, that's really the power of architecture, that you take something that is pure fiction, a, a wild figment of your imagination, and then a decade later, that's simply how the world is. A city like Venice in Italy, it's basically houses built in, in, the, in the marshes, and so nothing there is not man-made. Everything is created by someone. But now you take for granted that Venice is a city where people sail through the streets paved with water in, in gondolas. Uh, but that's because someone created it. And so it really went from fiction to fact. It went from fantasy to reality. And that's the true power of, of architecture. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to the first episode of season three. We have a great lineup planned and an entire year mapped out with a ton of surprises, collaborations, and events. So make sure you visit us online and register for updates at thegrandtourist.net. My guest today breaks the mold in so many ways and was once described by the New York Times in 2015 as the most important architect you've never heard of, Bjarke Ingels. But today, for any observer of design, he's a household name. While most architects can expect to build their first major project by the age of 50, Bjarka at 47 has already built dozens. Curvy museums, wildly shaped apartment blocks, avant-garde restaurants, visionary corporate headquarters, and more. But the success of the Danish architect, who now shuttles between New York and Copenhagen, is heavily tied to his sheer bravado and wild imagination. Who else but Bjarka could build an award-winning experience center for Lego, make it look like it was actually made out of Legos, and win awards for it? Who else could turn a power plant to a ski slope? Who else could build a triangular condo building on Manhattan's waterfront and get away with it? Unsurprisingly, before studying architecture, Bjarka thought he was going to be a cartoonist. And it's that knack for world building that is crystal clear in his portfolio. But he's not just a stylist. Together with his massive team of designers at his firm, Bjarka Ingels Group, also known as Big. He's tackling major projects the world over with a line of thinking called Bigamy, more on that later, where he turns what if into why not. Back at my days at Surface Magazine, I can remember his book called Yes is More, hitting the architecture world in 2009 like a bolt of lightning. Instead of a boring treatise that no one would read, he created a chunky graphic novel that combined illustrations with photography to get his complex ideas across. And most surprisingly, he was respected for it. One of his many, many upcoming projects that's just as audacious is Master Planet, where he attempts to re-engineer the way we consume energy around the world to tackle climate change. Crazy? Maybe. Controversial? To some. Fascinating? Absolutely. I caught up with Bjarka in New York to talk about how he got his first job working for Rem Koolhaas, how to best explain bigamy to the layman, his upcoming hotel in Switzerland for luxury watchmaker Audemars Piguet, the story genesis of Yes is More, and what it all means. The, the, late, the late 70s in Europe, uh, there were no inexpensive uh, flights. So uh, I think my, my, my interest in drawing uh, came very much from the three, four-day drives to go from Denmark through, uh, through Europe down to uh, what was called Yugoslavia back then. And I was sitting in the backseat of this like Moise Minor 1000 station car. If you remember the one with the, 
with wood siding. Yes, of course. <laughs> Pretty epic uh, vehicle. Uh, and um, essentially just drawing like mad. And I think as, um, as, as Europe passed by and eventually you had to cross the Alps as well and like castles and all kinds of things. I, th- I think it all just landed on on on, on paper, and and that that made me realize that I was um I was I was good at um at drawing things, and, and then I think almost like in this kind of positive uh, uh, reaffirmation, uh, I I I really started sort of everybody said, oh, wow, you're so good at drawing, and and I think so I eventually drew through my entire childhood, uh, you know, things, but mostly stories and, 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 and worlds. And, and I thought I was going to become um, a cartoonist. Of, of course, when, uh, when I graduated from high school, I realized that there is no cartoon academy in Copenhagen and, and somehow had to find something that looked a little bit like it. And, uh, and at the time, the, the architecture school was, was part of the art academy. And it was before computers and software had eaten up the entire world. So uh, back then, you had two years of basic education, which was all about giving you more technical tools to draw things. So, so I thought I, I've spent my entire life so far drawing like humans and animals and vehicles and all, all the action. And now, now maybe I can focus on the backdrop for a bit because education is free in Denmark. It doesn't hurt to fool around in the wrong education for a while and then until you find your feet. And so I, I was actually just thinking, you know, take, take the two years of, of more technical drawing skills and then, and then take it back into fiction. So after you studied architecture, your first job was at OMA uh, for the legendary Ram Coolhouse. What was that like? Um, yeah, actually, it was um, it was the only job I ever applied for uh, in architecture, and and it was uh, it was definitely not exactly it was it was definitely an, a pilgrimage. It was actually I, I went there first as a student, and then I returned as a, as an architect. I had I had sent a portfolio uh, maybe in October in December before Christmas I called and said uh, have you guys gone through the internship applications and they said yeah we have a pile of a few hundred and we're going to look at it in uh, in January and I was thinking like there was no way in hell I was going to stand out in a pile of hundreds so uh, I I spent Christmas re- remaking my portfolio and, and I think all architects or architect students will recognize this that the the, the problem of uh, of of your portfolio from from studies, I mean, unless you're like exceptionally gifted or the, the, the child of architects or whatever, the, the learning curve is quite steep, uh, which means that the, the first like one, two, three, four, five semesters are most likely going to suck. Uh, and you, have, you, you need the portfolio after, you know, sem- sem- semester seven or eight. So you have like, it's your, the, the portfolio making is mostly a giant exercise of putting lipstick on a pig, right? Like, because you, you somehow have the projects you did, but you have to somehow make them reflect what you can do now and not how, how like, useless you were, like, uh, three years ago. You need to make small models out of foam look really enticing, right? <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. So, so um, but, but then I, you know, I took a bus to Amsterdam, um, and I've been reading um, El Croquis. Um, it's the Spanish uh, architectural uh, uh, magazine that has very detailed credits at the end. So for every project, I could see which architects were attributed to which projects. So I had a few names that I could distill were important in, in, in the company. So I, I went in and asked for, for this person. L- luckily, he wasn't there. Uh, so then I said, okay, well, he told me then to ask for this person, uh, a guy called Gary Bates. And, uh, and Gary Bates showed up and, and, he, and he was, uh, he's, like, he's a very tall uh, guy. And, and I think he's only five years older than me. But back then it felt like he was the tallest and, 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 and most experienced person on planet Earth. And, and, and he had a kind of cranky attitude. So he was like sort of, a, 
I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't recall having ever spoken with you. And I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry, like, we, we haven't spoken actually, but uh, this person said to, to, to talk to you. And then he like took my portfolio uh, out of my hand and said, like, you can't just come in here without an appointment. And, but then he also started flicking through it. And, you know, as he, uh, as he was flicking through it, he, I, I was like feeding him a little bit of information. He asked a few questions and then he said, okay, let's sit down for five minutes and maybe you don't have to come back. And then uh, he, he was then basically like criticizing everything I'd done in my entire life uh, fiercely. And then he said, so when can you start? <laughs> so wow was like, i mean uh, that's ballsy that's really ballsy but it worked right, it's only worked it was uh it was definitely one of the one of the greatest moments in my in my life uh at, at that time and what was what was rem like as a boss no he's um it was funny because like when you when you're uh when you're a kid you don't you don't yet know or understand how the world works and you also don't understand how much work goes into making a project happen you tend to think that the work you're doing is is the most important, and the and so, so in that sense, like I I remember that at the time I was like surprised of how little he was sitting down and uh, you know, in a way dr- drawing with us. Right? It was it was mostly that we would like work like crazy, and then he would come by very quickly and ask like a lot of pointed questions and no patience for like long-winded explanations and uh, and and he would like cut explanations short and go straight to the heart of the matter and like this is interesting what is this and like so in some way i, I felt it was like superficial or like impatient or, or like aloof like disconnected exactly but um but but of course uh, tw- 25 years later uh, or almost 30 years later actually 30 almost 30 years there I'm, I'm realizing that that he was probably extremely involved but there were so many battles to fight and also like um Often the, the discussions and, and the little FaceTime we had would digress from core architectural conversations into what I felt was more like tactical or political or strategic conversations. But, but again, it's because politics and, you know, in a way, some form of power struggles around the decision making that goes into reaching a situation where a project can actually happen and where a different project can happen building the necessary support from the people that have to make votes or from the neighbors that can actually put down like roadblocks, et cetera. Like that entire game is such a fundamental part of architecture. And, and because I was unaware of it, I felt that me and the other guys who were like building the models, doing the drawings, like that maybe I felt like we, we were doing all the work, but, but slowly I, I realized that we, we had the space to do that work because of, of, of someone understanding the architectural part, but also understanding all, all the other aspects of, of the incredibly complex process that is what becomes, uh, when it goes well, uh, into a, a building. So, so I think in that sense, like, um, you know, it was incredibly educational. Ultimately, architecture is a master-apprentice art form uh, and the kind of tacit transmission of skills that you get, of course, from the, from the head of the, of the studio, but also from all the other characters. Like, the most amazing thing about OMA, and I think it's definitely also... One of the strengths of, um, of, of BIG is um, you have this kind of migration of, of talent from all over the planet that all come with a different angle. They, they all come very well versed into the body of work and the kind of mission and vision behind BIG, but they all have a different take on it. It's not an army of clones. It's an incredibly diverse environment where somehow people can be aligned around this one thing 
even if they bring completely different things to the table. And I think that, that was one of the things that really mesmerized me of the year spent at, at OMA was the, the, the quality of the characters that I was working with and how different our perspectives were. And I was somehow assuming that everybody would, would know and understand OMA and Rem Kolas the, the same way I did. But I realized that there was no... Uh, there was no single truth. It was like everybody had a completely different take on the, on the meta-narrative. Before we return to Bjarka, a word from our sponsor, Ford Street Studio. Ford Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. The luxurious pieces are customizable in color, size, and shape which is why a global list of top architects and interior designers specify them for their clients' interiors. Founded in 1996 by the artists Janice Provisor and Brad Davis, Fort Street Studio is world-renowned for its suede-like, hand-knotted wild silk and wool silk blend carpets that combine traditional techniques with inventive textures and modern, sophisticated aesthetics. And in 2021, Rizzoli published the studio's first book titled A Tale of Warp and Weft, which chronicles 25 years of adventures in carpet making. For more information, visit fortstreetstudio.com. And and when you when you had started your first firm plot uh, with Julian Desmet, like as a young firm, I mean you're still young today, right? If I named the, uh, you know, in my opinion, <laughs> like some of the 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 biggest architects today, and you'd be on it, you'd definitely be the youngest. Right um, at, at a certain level. I mean, doing your first ground-up commission at Plot. How how young were you at the time? Um, yeah. So um, Shunan and I started in nineteen no in in two thousand November two thousand, uh, and we we built the the harbor bath in uh, in Copenhagen, and it, you know it's a one million dollar project. It's a floating pontoon with a wooden deck, but it became a kind of manifestation. And, you know, we had six months to do it. The budget was ridiculous. Uh, the schedule was even more ridiculous. And we had to sort of downgrade our ambitions multiple times. And each time we were sort of considering if we should throw in the towel and walk away from the commission because we were beginning to feel that there was nothing left to be proud of. And ultimately, we sort of dug in and, and opened the, the project. And it was definitely a, a dialed-down version of our initial vision but it was a built project. And you were like 25, I guess, maybe. Yeah, that, at that point, we were probably uh, 27. Okay. It was also an incredible lesson because, of course, the excruciating pain of, of compromise and, and all these kind of ultimate moments where you're like considering, is, are we compromising too much to, to save the... Is it going to be a successful operation? But the patient died, right? Um, and I think ultimately, we also realized the power of, of getting stuff done. And, and I think um, it also became a perfect manifestation of, of, of this idea of what we ended up identifying as hedonistic sustainability, this idea that the, su the sustainable city or the sustainable building can be, is not only good for the environment, it's, it's, it can be much more enjoyable for the people living in it. And the harbor bath suddenly sort of made it so blatantly obvious that a clean port is not only nice for the fish, it's amazing for the citizens. It, it extends the public realm into the water. It, it becomes... The, the French student riot motto from uh, from uh, from '68, uh, sous le, le pavé la plage, you know, underneath the pavement there is a beach, you know, inside the port there is actually the ocean, right? So um, despite all its sort of architectural 
compromises and, and technical shortcomings, it, it became a perfect manifestation of something very powerful. Uh, and, and in that sense, was was definitely worth it. And I also realized that the purity of an unbuilt vision is, of course, unmatchable because it hasn't been tainted by any of the kind of countless forces uh, that you that you encounter in the process of, of of realizing something, including gravity and economy and and uh, and fire regulations and egress and access and all kinds of things, but um, that actually that galvanization that happens when an idea is tested and tried and hardened by reality also provides surprises or unexpected moments. And I I think I learned also how, of course, you need a an o- overarching like like arc actually like a, a kind of overarching form of what is this project all about and what it's going to be but within that you have to be incredibly agile and um, improvise so in that sense it's more like jazz than uh, a classical composition that uh, there's going to be all these moments where if you're not prepared to incorporate that counter reaction or that opposition into your work it's going to be like a hard conflict and it's it's you know it's it's going to break but if you're more like almost like zen or aikido or martial arts that if you learn how to turn the force of your opposition into your own uh, strength then um, you become so much stronger can you tell me a little bit about yes is more and the sort of the genesis of that uh, because it was such a to me when i think back to like early days of covering design, I remember it being kind of like something of a flashpoint of this sort of like mixture of like youth culture and what was cool and coming from a young person, but also about really serious things um, and doing it in a way that was kind of radical for its time. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was and how that started? No, exactly. So, so Yes is More is, a, is an, uh, uh, I think we call it an archie comic. It's, uh, it's, it's essentially a, a book about architecture, essentially the work that we had been doing up until uh, the end of 2008. And it's, it's told in the form of a, of a graphic novel. Actually, it's modeled over Frank Miller's uh, Sin City and Dark Knight. Uh, so it's, it's the American graphic novel format which is more like a book compared to the European uh, uh, cartoons. And, um, and at, at the time, we were, we'd been working uh, the Danish contribution to the Architecture Biennale in Venice together with Bruce Mao. And in that process, uh, we had a kind of eureka moment because Bruce was in Copenhagen. And, and as part of it, we were kind of co-curating the, the, the Biennale. It ended up beca- being called Seven New Denmarks. And it was the idea of applying the power of design to, to all of Denmark within seven different economies. Uh, and one of them was the economy of logistics or shipping. And the whole idea was sparked when uh, you know, I took uh, Bruce through the, uh, through the studio and, and we were showing him some of the projects we were doing, including this research we had done on the use of, of harbors. When you, go, when you go to the studio with the architect and they, and they tell, all, all of the work comes to life, right? And when you, when you go to the building or the building site with the, with the architect, again, you know, the, the project comes to life and you feel it, you sense it. And even when you go to the finished building, if it's successful, you, the, the building itself now fully manifested will speak for itself. But when you go to architectural exhibitions, uh, it's just like dead drawings and materials. Like, so how can you capture energy of walking around with the architect in an exhibition or a book? So his answer for the, for the Biennale was that we did a film with uh, Shunan and I explaining the Super Harbor. Uh, so like walking around, like almost like a weather report uh, through these maps and numbers. Uh, so then when we did the exhibition for Yes Is More, we were, I was thinking like, let's try to see if we can capture this idea of 
of walking through an office with the architect, telling, telling the stories behind the scenes of the projects, how they turn, turn into what they were. And, and my first idea was to, to take all the PowerPoint presentations that I had done in the last eight years and print them out and put post-it notes that would say verbatim what I would say while showing that slide. Um, but it, it turned into this, uh, you know, like a, a two foot tall stack of slides, infinitely slow paced, because of course, when you, when you click through things, you can sometimes click through things very fast and you, you can change the pace. And, and I was about to give up on the idea. And then we realized actually a graphic novel uses scale. So sometimes it takes a full page and you can dwell on it. Sometimes it goes down to speed things up into very small frames after each other. And, and you have spoken word. And, and we even thought, like, let's, let's put the architect uh, uh, narrator into the frames once in a while. So it became like really walking through the, the office. And it starts with literally walking through our office. And you see the people that I'm working with. Did people think you were crazy? I don't know. Like, uh, it was uh, also like the blessing was that we basically did it in the entire month of January 2009. And we had to submit it to the printers uh, around February 1st. Wow. So there was... There was actually no time to think. And I, I you know, we, we worked so intensely that I, I, I started uh, smoking cigarettes for like, again, I, I had quit like five years before. Um, wow. So, so it, it, it cost me three months of, uh, of smoking actually to, to do it. <laughs> but um, because there was no time to think, like, at some, like when we submitted it to the princess, we were also thinking, this is the cheesiest, <laughs> lamest thing ever done in architectural publication. Uh, and, and I was thinking, well, well, thank God. It's just the, the exhibition was basically all our models and then the wall mounted the graphic novel wrapping around it like a linear narrative in a way. And I thought, thank God it's, it's only in Danish. So, you know, who cares? And, and we printed the, the catalog in English, but you know, 5,000 copies, we say like, we'll sell them out and forget they ever existed. And, and, you know, once, you know, the dust has settled, you know, we can sit down and carefully edit it and, uh, and put it out. Mm -hmm. as, as it's supposed to be. And then what happened was that the exhibition opened and then the, the first uh, few thousand books uh, sold out. And the last thing I wanted to do was to revisit any of this, uh, like death, death by editing. And also like then I picked it up a few months later and I thought, well, maybe it wasn't so bad. And I, I thought, you know, maybe it should really just stay as a kind of freeze frame of this one moment. And I think as an experiment, it, it succeeded. I mean, of course, it was a little bit at the expense of the more classic aesthetics or beauty of making your work look as good as it can, but it came with a completely different level of storytelling that uh, that I think uh, was was worth it. And then, and then, then the funny thing was like, uh, Tashin opened a bookstore in uh, in Copenhagen, and Benedict mm. Tashin came for the opening. So I, I came to the opening with uh, with the with the, the graphic novel, and and put it on his shelves. And and he and he saw it and he was laughing about it, and then he said, uh, then, then we exchanged, um, you know, information. And then he actually wrote me a, a message the next day saying that he was on the plane, he had, he had been reading the, the the book and he liked it and he said we should we should have a conversation. So then he ended up uh, publishing it. So it was kind of this like little, uh, you know, I I think and, and maybe one last thing to 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 put into the perspective and and, and that explains the title. Yes, is more was that this was. February 2009, basically a few months after uh, August, September uh, 2008, the, the biggest uh, crash uh, in, in the global economy I had, I had experienced in my lifetime. And um, there was this kind of sense of negativity and, and depression. And, and we thought it could be interesting, maybe even necessary with some kind of blatant statement uh, of optimism. And of course, Barack uh, Obama had just been elected uh, 
president of the United States. Yes, we can. So he, he also made it into, oh, I see. We, uh, into the book. There was like this little evolution of, of ideological, or mostly architectural discourse from less is more with Mies van der Rohe to um, mm -hmm. less is a bore with, uh, uh, with Robert Venturi to um, I'm a whore, Philip Johnson, uh, to, uh, <laughs> to Barack Obama. Yes, we can. So we, we created this little kind of evolution of, of uh, architectural discourse dealing with, uh, with, with trying to distill the essence of the profession into a, a, a single sort of aphorism. And the, and the idea of yes is more is, is this kind of statement about actually a lot of the things I talked about saying yes to the world as it is, you know, uh, accepting the incoming of often contradictory requirements and demands and concerns and criticism and uh, requests and Rather than the traditional idea of the avant-garde or is the idea of the revolutionary that is against something. A lot of the greatest leaps uh, come from evolution. That what you describe as a revolution is often just a series of evolutions that reach a moment where it feels like paradigm change, even if it is just gradual developments. The iPhone was not a technological revolution. It was an evolution, it was, but it was funneling all of the things that had already been invented into a new consumer-facing holistic design that made it feel like a revolution. The same with the Tesla, the same. So often we tend to describe things as revolutions when they are actually evolutions. And, um, and in that sense, the idea of yes is more is to, to think of the world as, and the role of the avant-garde, not to necessarily be against everything, but actually to say, what if, we, what if the art of accommodation, the radical art of accommodation, is to try to say yes and accommodate everybody, even, and, and I think that is the ultimate urban experiment, or it's even the ultimate experiment of society, is how can you create a society that can accommodate the maximum amount of freedom for everybody, as long as they don't end up inhibiting each other by unfolding, as, as long as they, the unfolding of their freedom doesn't happen at the expense of others. But like this incredible complex knitting of a kind of knot of, uh, of different dreams and desires, concerns and demands into a, an architecture or a world that is informed by this complexity and contradiction. So in that sense, the, the art of saying yes can actually be more radical and create seemingly more revolutionary results than, uh, than being against something. And, and I, I think ultimately it allowed me to make the statement that if you're always defined by who or what you are against, you are essentially a follower in reverse because you're not setting agenda, the others are setting the agenda, you're just against them. That's why it's easier also politically to be in opposition. And you always see that politicians that are so successful in opposition, once they get the power, uh, they suck at it because now, now they're in the, the driver's seat and their whole discourse is about who or what they are against. If someone wanted to understand some of your, your more you know, recognizable projects that have sort of broken through to the general culture, like the Lego house. You mentioned once in a, in a video that you did uh, that architecture is the fiction of the real world. Um, and this sort of idea of bigamy, right? A play on big, you know, Bjarke Engels group. Um, can you describe what that means to, to someone who is not, uh, you know, not a follower of architecture who doesn't really quite, um, you know, is not knee deep in it as some of us might be. Yeah, like, first of all, like, I think architecture is maybe best described as the art of turning fiction into fact. Uh, and it's because when you, uh, when you make a project, and, I, and like one example is uh, 
as may maybe Copen Hill, the, this uh, waste to energy power plant we've built in Copenhagen. Uh, it's the cleanest waste to energy power plant in the world. And it's so clean that, that we got the idea when we did the competition to turn its roof into a man-made alpine ski slope. So uh, it's, it's essentially, it has, uh, you know, 120 different species of plants. It has like multiple trees, pine trees. It has ski lifts and it has this uh, all year skiable surface. And it's because there are no toxins coming out of the chimney. And to explain this idea, so we were sitting doing the competition and we were brainstorming like, what's the real question here? What's the real opportunity? And it's, it's basically, the, it's the power of clean technology. That clean technology is not only better for the environment, it's fundamentally different. It means that a power plant is not some eyesore that blocks the view and casts shadows on the neighbors and uh, pollutes the sky. It's, it's so clean that you can actually walk on the roof. Um, and Copenhagen is flat. So the one thing you can use a 300 foot tall lump of uh, power plant for is actually a man-made mountain. Uh, we have to go to the Alps or, or the Rockies or, or the north of Norway to ski. Otherwise, uh, now we can do it at home. So, so we come up with this, we dream up this wild idea of, of a society where technology is so clean that the power plants can turn into uh, man-made mountains where the citizens can climb the facades and ski the roofs, um, uh, where a power plant that turns trash into energy can actually be uh, the habitat for birds and frogs and you know, mice and foxes and whatever. Uh, and that sounds like a utopian fantasy, pure fiction or even science fiction. But then, you know, we do all the hard work. We submit a, a plausible and ultimately electable winning design for the competition. Then we have to go through all kinds of rounds where we have to come up with the idea that, you know, well, the, the power plant is not allowed to run uh, ski slopes because that's not in their uh, purpose as a company. So uh, we had to create a foundation that could then operate the roof park. And like, and then, you know, it, it took roughly a decade. But then, you know, on opening day, we were at an after-ski party in the month of September in the middle of Copenhagen, uh, uh, a city that is flat and, and mostly reclaimed from the sea. And we now had a hikeable, skiable mountain in the middle of Copenhagen. And my, my son is, uh, he was not even a year when it opened. So he won't know of a world where you did not ski on the power plant in Copenhagen. So for him and his entire generation, that is simply how the world now is. That power plants is where you go skiing or, and, and it has a, a 300 foot climbable facade as the, the tallest man-made climbing wall in the world. So so it, it, that's really the power of architecture, that you take something that is pure fiction, uh, a wild figment of your imagination, and then a decade later, that's simply how the world is. Uh, and I think that's, and that's the true power of, of architecture. And, and speaking about sort of resilience and new things and new ideas, uh, one, of your, one of your first hospitality projects with this hotel for Audemars Piguet uh, in Switzerland, can you tell me a little bit about uh, to the audience, like what that is and how that was conceived in a way that um, for this legendary watchmaker, uh, there's a museum on the site that you've also designed, which is kind of a spiral. And then next to it is this kind of new, uh, this new structure acting as a hotel for their collectors and visitors. Yeah, exactly. Like, so, um, yeah, so, so the whole sort of a uh, uh, partnership and friendship with, uh, with, uh, uh, with Ormar Piquet uh, started maybe uh, half a decade ago. We, we got an invite to uh, to, um, to to make uh, their museum of uh, 
uh, of watchmaking. And uh, I was visiting some friends over Christmas and uh, New Year for, uh, in Switzerland for skiing. So I, I drove uh, across the Switzerland to, to arrive at the Valley du Joux, the, the cradle of watchmaking. And um, it's right after New Year. So um, uh, their sort of master watchmaker uh, receives me. Um, and I think he was a, a Gallego, like a, from the north of Spain. So um, the language we had in common was Spanish. And, and I didn't know much about uh, watches. I, like, like most people, I had converted to a, a, a phone, which is essentially a pocket watch. Uh, and then he took me through the kind of whole process of making a, a watch uh, and this kind of almost alchemical process of, he was, he was showing me how to make a, a bell and he was heating it up and he had a sheet of colors. And when the metal had a certain tone of purple, he dipped it in water and the molecules of the metal would then sort of freeze at that kind of structure. And then he would start sanding it to, to reach the, the perfect tone. And, and, uh, and I was mesmerized. And what I realized is that we had become so used to this idea of hardware and software being two separate things. The hardware is essentially the empty container. And the software is what animates it uh, when you would like download an app on your, on your iPhone. But in watchmaking... The architecture or the form is the content. The hardware is the software, which actually is something it has in common with architecture. That architecture and watchmaking, it's still, you know, the, the sequence of, of rooms, the, the location of the wall, uh, the, the way that you move through the space is the experience. Like, so I was like deeply fascinated um, and, and like left really sort of animated uh, with this idea. And we came up with the idea of, a, of, of making an architecture for the museum as, as a sort of open work watch so that everything you see is exposed the way that uh, an AP uh, shows the, some of them reveal the open work one, reveal the inner workings as part of the, the beauty of the, of the mechanics. And um, so it became this kind of chronological journey of a double spiral that sorts around itself. And... Um, the, the curved glass uh, is actually uh, the only structure. So there are no walls, no columns. Uh, glass is actually stronger than steel. So it's similar to AP, like using the materials to their greatest performance. Um, so you have this like brass spring hovering above. And then as we were doing this project and we were so lucky to win the, the, the competition, they realized that uh, they, they needed a hotel in the valley because they really want people to sort of immerse themselves in the culture of the valley. And, and they asked us to, to, to design a hotel. And actually the, the, the funny thing is maybe to in, in insert here. So then of course, we had such a strong narrative that the kind of topology of the spiral was the museology of the museum, right? So for the hotel, we could do a five-story building, but it's a small village. So we didn't want to dwarf the rest of the village. So we came up with this idea of like stretching the five-story uh, building to sort of schmear over the, the sloping hill of the, of the mountainside, of the Jura mountain. It's really at the foot of the mountains. So it becomes almost like a serpentine uh, ski slope. You often talk about skiing and ski out, but it's never really true. Uh, in, in this case, this kind of serpentized ski route means that e every room and the restaurant and the spa uh, and the brasserie and the hotel bar has direct access to the slope. So in the six months of winter, uh, on your cross-country skis, you can literally ski in and ski out. Uh, and in the six months of summer, you can hike straight out into the, into the meadow 
on this kind of roof landscape. So, so in some ways, the two projects are, are very different, but they're both shaped by the way that you, you move around them in a way they are hardware is their, is their software. And, and I think that the truth is that um, almost no matter what you talk about, if you're speaking with someone who has deep knowledge and is deeply passionate about the subject, it has the potential to unfold an entire world. And that's what I experienced with this, with this watchmaker. And, and I think I learned like this incredible uh, st story about why Valley du Joux outside Genève is the cradle of watchmaking because I think it transcends uh, watchmaking. It's basically because uh, Jean Calvin, the namesake of Calvinism, uh, made a ban in Geneva against wearing jewelry. So suddenly all the jewelers and goldsmiths could not practice their craft. But uh, watchmaking was a functional tool. So they basically directed all of their skills, all of the precision sort of uh, ornament work and decoration, etc and channeled it towards watchmaking, giving that field an incredible boost and really turning this part of Switzerland in the Jura Mountains into the kind of mecca for, for watchmaking. So, and, I, and I love it as a story is that often we see this idea of perseverance pounding through your obstacles as the, the hallmark of innovation. But it's actually when you are forced, in this case, uh, a religious uh, you know, dogma, a ban against jewelry, that you then have to sort of you can't pound through, so you have to sort of steer another route, and that will force you to discover new territory and, 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 and make new connections that you, that you never made before. In this case, applying jewelry to, to watchmaking became the essence of, of, the, of the craft. And I, and I think that's true. That's, it's essentially a great example of yes is more, that by embracing reality as it is, by dealing with this new situation that, that you're facing, you're not actually compromising or giving in. You're allowing yourself to make new connections, discover new, uh, new ground that, that you otherwise wouldn't have. And as my last question, uh, speaking of this sort of like vision for the future, can you explain a little bit about Master Planet and you know, what that is and, and how do you explain it to, to a sort of a layman? Oh, exactly. It's, 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 a, it's a great... Uh, Short question with a ridiculously long answer to uh, to end on, but I'll, I'll try to boil it uh, boil it down. Um, like so, basically, what happened? Like before the pandemic, I think like everybody else, we were getting growing frustration about you know uh, as a species our inability to really act uh, with resolve in the face of climate change. And um, uh, and one of the things that I think makes it difficult to deal with, and also like a lot of my friends asking if we should be depressed or like fear for the life of our children or whatever. And, and, and I think sort of hopelessness is never good. You know, when you're out hiking in the wild, if you give up, that's when you, you know, fall asleep and die, right? So hopelessness is not a good mindset uh, if you want to uh, survive or change the world. And, and then secondly, we thought like one of the frustrating things is that we don't really know. Because like you can do good things. You can do elite gold building or elite silver or like elite platinum. And clearly elite platinum would be better than elite gold. We, can, we understand that ranking. But what does it mean in terms of, of climate change or addressing the issue? So we thought like, why don't we actually see if it's possible? Because like we deal with projects and we deal with master plans. We deal with neighborhoods. We, need, we deal with like cities. Uh, we even did like a kind of regional plan for the south of Sweden and, uh, and east of Denmark. We can deal with very large, complex projects and we can make plans for them. 
Um, so we thought, like, what if, what if we actually see, let's look at all of Earth as a single, let's call it a single piece of real estate, you know, like a single, a single site. It's 500 million square kilometers of real estate, and it's 71% water and 29% uh, land, and, you know, roughly 30, like 9% is like mountains and deserts, and then the remaining part, half is nature and half is mostly agriculture, but also a little bit of city. And then we sort of started sort of breaking it down and say, like, if we were the master planners of the planet, could, could it be done? Could we reach carbon neutrality by 2050? Could you create and accommodate a sustainable human presence on Earth? And could you do it not just for 7.8 billion people, but 10 billion people? And could you do it for 10 billion people with the quality of life of Denmark, uh, not, you know, the kind of wide inequality that you experience today? Because that should somehow be the task, right? And, and we thought, to our knowledge, it hasn't been done. You know, there's a lot of scientific reports, but they're basically too long and too technical for most people to get a sense of them. There's speeches that are too general and aspirational and lofty, but not really hard targets. And I think, I know that to, to, to build a building that's going to be done in 10 years requires us to start now. To make a master plan that's going to be realized in 20 uh, years requires us to start now. So we have 20 eight years until 2050. So we should have pretty specific blueprints already. Not that they're going to be final. They're going to be like a framework upon which you can improve. And, and the way that master plans happen is that you digest the current information, you put out a proposal for a, a public hearing, and then you receive feedback, political feedback, uh, you know, neighborhood uh, feedback, uh, all kinds of user feedback. Uh, so essentially, the, the first blueprint exists with the purpose of being of attracting so much criticism that you can make a, a better one. And through that kind of refinement process, you arrive at something that's useful. But it's certain that if you don't start that process of planning, uh, you'll never get there. And I, and I think maybe one, one last sort of call to arms, because of course, when we started doing it, and we call it master plan for the planet or master planet in short, we, we also attracted all kinds of antagonism that, that, that the kind of arrogance to think that you can make a master plan for the planet. And, and obviously it's, 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 it is a rather large uh, undertaking, but the absence of a master plan actually has dire consequences. Um, um, and maybe to close on this point, I, I, um, I spent uh, a few months of the lockdown um, staying at some friends in a nature reserve in Sian Khan in, in Yucatan. And we were there like for two months uh, after a year of, uh, uh, of the pandemic. And so like no one had been to that uh, nature reserve apart from a few inhabitants. But every day the beach would fill up with uh, plastic coming in for the Caribbean, most likely from Cuba. Um, so the idea is that we have this idea that oh, we should just le let nature be nature. But our presence and the impact of our presence on the planet is so widely felt right now that in order for something to be untouched by humans, it has to be combed every morning by humans because the result of having no master plan for the planet is that we have a master plan, in fact, in, in effect, that is a shitty one and it says we don't give a shit. So I think the fact that the, the dire consequences of no master plan for the planet is felt worldwide is, means that we no longer have a choice. 
the absence of planning is having terrible consequences. So the only way to make the world untouched by man is to plan for it. Uh, and, and that's why we started the work and we've been doing it for the last uh, two years. We've attracted some partnerships with, with various uh, 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 mostly Danish uh, companies in the, in the space of energy and, and the environment. And, 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 and we hope to be able to make this, um, this planning framework and this way of looking at the world available in, uh, 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 in a greater sense over the next, uh, over the next year. But, but, but for now, just doing the work, uh, adding up the math in, in a way, just assume, cause we're not coming up with any of this. We're just in a way, compiling everything that is out there and, and, and accessible into a kind of holistic framework. Um, I think has has at least given me such a fundamental understanding of of where we are and and what it takes to to do it. And I think the I think the the challenging news is that it's like an insurmountable sort of insane amount uh, of work. Uh, the good news is that it's 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 totally possible. We have all the techniques, we have all the knowledge. Uh, all we need to do is like set some hard goals, uh, start drawing up the blueprint, and and then keep keep criticizing it and and sort of making it better until until we're there. Thank you to Bjarka and his team at Big for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.